What does the Bible say about playing the stock market? Is it the same as gambling? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. In the age in which we live in, certainly you and I have seen false prophets, false teachers of Islam and and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and other isms that have led millions down a road of false religion and false hope. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 24 that in the last days there would be many false prophets leading people astray. We've certainly seen that in the world around us today as millions are led down religious paths that are filled with false gods and false hope. But today in Revelation chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to the last and greatest false prophet of them all. The second beast's power is not political, but it is religious. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Well, if you've been with us throughout this study, you know that last week we were introduced to the first beast, better known to us as the Antichrist. He will set up a political empire to rule the world. He's built political power, and he brings in the second guy, this false prophet, to build the religious base. Hey, can I tell you something? If you can make people believe something religiously, you can get them to do almost anything. You can get them to fly airplanes into buildings. You can get them to blow themselves up. You can get them to do almost anything if you can get them to believe something religiously. Today, we're introduced to the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, the false prophet. The false prophet will create a false religion focused on a false Christ. As Pastor Clay explains today, the false prophet will deceive the whole world into worshiping an image of the Antichrist and taking his mark. It's going to be a time like no other in the history of the world. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned us that in the latter days there would come many false prophets who would lead people astray. And in the age in which we live in, certainly you and I have seen false prophets, false teachers of of Islam and and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and other isms that have led millions down a road of false religion and false hope. Today, we are introduced in Revelation chapter 13 to the last and greatest false prophet. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you today, open it to Revelation chapter 13. We're in verses 11 through 18 this morning as we're working through. began the first Sunday in January, and God willing and the timing works out, we will finish uh, in 2010. (laughs) I'm fairly confident of that. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. The text is up on the screen, by the way, as well. And the back of your information sheet has an outline. If you're interested in taking outlines, and I encourage you to do so. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. We talked about that last week. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 18. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we were introduced to a beast, the text says, coming up out of the sea. Do you remember that if you were here with us? We were introduced to a beast coming up out of the sea. And I shared with you last week that almost all conservative scholarship is in agreement that when the the sea is used symbolically, it represents the the nations. It represents the ethnos, the the ethnic groups of the world. It represents the, the vast throngs of humanity. It represents Gentiles, which simply means non-Jewish. If someone, if you're not Jewish, you are, by Jewish terms, you are Gentile. It wasn't really a very flattering term that the Jews gave to us, but basically that's how we think of it. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And so the beast coming up out of the sea is a man who comes from the sea of humanity, if you will. He is a Gentile. We saw last week as he came to power, and we talked a lot about that. This week, we're introduced to another beast, a second beast, this time coming up out of the earth. This beast is coming up out of the earth, which, now let me say this, there is disagreement among scholarship, there's just been a disagreement about this for years as to exactly what this means. But I throw in with the camp that believes coming up out of the earth is a reference to the nation of Israel. Let me explain to you why, because you're probably dying to know, right? Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for encouraging me. Now, it is true that the word earth that's used here, remember the the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That's the original language it was written in. Um, The word that's translated here, earth, is a very common word that simply means earth. I mean, that's, in its pure sense, that's simply what the word means. So, if we only have the word to go by, if we simply say, well, it says the word earth, then, then it would be hard to say that it actually means Israel. But, John clearly seems to be making a distinction between the first beast who came up out of the sea and the second beast who came up out of the earth. You understand what I'm saying? He clearly seems to be indicating that these two beasts are coming from two different places. Last week, we established that the beast coming up out of the sea was 
and remember, he's called a beast not because it's some sort of creature or animal or whatever. He's called a beast basically because of what he will do, because of his nature and because of his, his, uh, his, his demon, the demonic influence upon his life. But the, the beast is simply a man. Both beasts are simply men. The first beast, if the first beast coming up out of the sea represents the Gentile nations, and if John seems to be making a distinction between the first, where the first beast came from and the second beast came from, then it makes sense that the second beast then would be from Israel. He would be Jewish if he's, if he's making a distinction, saying one came from the sea, one came from the earth. Aren't you glad you asked? So, uh, it's my conviction that, that the earth, in this sense, represents Israel. He's coming up that he is Jewish. He is uh, better known to us. Well, let, let me get to that in just a second. It, it says that the beast that he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. Now, technically speaking, as I understand it, Doctor Clare, our veterinary surgeon, could clear this up for it. But technically, as I understand it, lambs don't have horns. The implication here is is that this. This beast, remember he's a man, that this beast has power. Not as much as the beast we looked at last week with ten horns. He has power, but he won't seem threatening. He won't seem intimidating. That he will, so to speak, have the appearance of a lamb. There'll be a meekness about him, perhaps a mildness, perhaps even peaceful in in his appearance and as he begins to come to the forefront. Notice that his horns, these two horns, do not have crowns on them. And I know if you're here for the first time, you're thinking, okay, you've got to go back and listen. But last week we talked about this. The, the ten crowns on the ten horns last week represented ten, uh, ten empires or ten nations or ten, it represented political power. This beast doesn't have crowns on his horns, which means that the power that he has is not political. First beast... Who, who is, the first beast is who? Who's the first beast? Antichrist. Antichrist has political power. He builds his foundation on political power. He, he absorbs nations and, and takes over empires and builds his own empire. It's political. The second beast doesn't have, his power is not political. But he speaks, text says, as a dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. We, we've established that fact weeks back. Uh, the red dragon, the dragon, is referring to Satan. So he speaks as Satan, which simply means that his authority, his power, what he says, everything comes from, ultimately, from Satan. So, he has power, but it's not political power. Then, in verse 12, we're told that he exercises all authority, all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and watch this, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to what? Worship the first beast. So the second beast's power is not political, but it is religious. The second beast would be better known to those of us who are students of the Bible as the false prophet. The second beast is the false prophet. By the way, scripturally, he's referred to as the false beast in, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter, I think it's chapter uh, well, no, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, uh, and Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. He, he, we see this beast who is referred to as 
the false prophet. If you think about it, it makes sense that the first beast, who's the first beast? I'm trying to keep you all with me. It, it makes sense that the first beast would have a, uh, a religious mouthpiece, if you will, to come alongside him and, and kind of build up the religious arm of this guy's empire. It makes sense that he would do that because the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, whether you realize this or not, man, mankind is incurably religious. Here's what Tim LaHaye says about it. Tim LaHaye says, Since humanity is incurably religious, a world dictator must provide people with an outlet for their religious inclinations. And that is the truth. We are incurably religious. By the way, it's one of the great arguments for the existence of God. One of the great arguments for the existence of God is just the fact that you and I worship, that people worship, that there is no tribe or tongue or nation or people group on the face of the earth that doesn't worship something. Yeah, but what about atheists? Sure, there are atheists. There are people who deny the existence of God, but that is a conclusion they have come to in their life. It's not something that they were born with because we know every people group on the face of the earth worships something. Where does that come from? Is there a worship gene? This, this idea of worshiping something, the idea of God, where does that come from? It's really, a pretty, in my estimation, a strong argument for the existence of God. So the first beast, the first man, Antichrist, has a second beast, a second man, the false prophet, come alongside of him to to build up his empire and to solidify it. He's built political power, and he brings in the second guy, this false prophet, to build the religious base. Hey, can I tell you something? If you can make people believe something religiously, you can get them to do almost anything. You can get them to fly airplanes into buildings. You can get them to blow themselves up. You can get them to do almost anything if you can get them to believe something religiously. He makes them who dwell on the earth those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Verse 13 says, he performs great signs. It's the same word, by the way, that's used for the miracles that Jesus performs. You may not like that, but it's the same word, same term. He is apparently given the ability to do great works, and he does them in the presence of the first beast, the Antichrist. Meaning, everything that he does is designed to glorify, to build up, to promote Antichrist in the eyes of the people. The, the text says he's even able to make fire come down out of heaven in the presence of men. Sounds very similar to a biblical story. Do you remember the story? 1 Kings chapter 18 and the story of Elijah calling fire down on Mount Carmel calling fire down out of heaven in, in the presence of the people so that the people would be convinced that the Lord is God? You remember that story? And people were waffling back and forth. Well, we don't know. Uh, and, and Elijah says, God, show up. He sends fire down and it consumes the altar and all that stuff. And then the people change their tune. Remember, they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Isn't it interesting that this false prophet mimics or copies a genuine prophet of the genuine God? with one of his miracles. I suspect of many of his miracles. To call fire down out of heaven in the presence of men. And, and then verse 14 it says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which he has given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those, here it is, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. 
who had the wound of the sword and came, and came back to life. So in verse 14, this uh, false prophet, who is the mouthpiece, the spokesman, the religious parallel to the Antichrist, who works under the, par- the Antichrist and who promotes the Antichrist, he commands the people to build an image to the first beast, the Antichrist. Now, we don't know what that image necessarily what it looks like. It means it look, does it look like him? Is it what, exactly? What, we may not know exactly what it looks like, but we know what it does. It it puts the people in direct conflict with what God commands them to do. I mean, think about it. The very first two of the Ten Commandments. Y'all remember those? The very first two. What do they say? Worship no other gods and make no graven image or idol. And they just bust those two right off the bat. All with this idea of worshiping this Antichrist. And clearly, it's more than just an image. Because the text says that he's able to... And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. Breath is the best translation, by the way. Some translations may have life. The word is pneuma. It means spirit, wind, breath. He's able to give... In other words, he's able to make this image speak. I don't know exactly what that means. We live in an age of technology and, and, and what they can do with computer-driven imagery and holograms and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I have no idea what can be done. Like I said, I just saw Inception and I'm like, what? How do they even do that? So it's possible that this is some type of just simple deception. But more than likely, I think it's an actual miraculous event. I think it's actually some demonstration of the power of this false prophet which ultimately comes from Satan. Listen, you and I may not like to think about it this way or not, but Satan is still a very powerful creature, a very powerful entity in this world. He's not God. He's not even, you know, counter God, you know, the opposite. I mean, he is against God, but he is not God. But he is powerful. And he is apparently able to do things like the book of Job. By the way, in the book of Job, Satan apparently has fire come down, you remember, and consumes his, Job's livestock. So he is powerfully he's able to do these things that apparently convince the people that this first beast, the Antichrist, is not simply a man, but he is a god worthy to be worshipped. And remember we talked about this, I think, last week. This is what Satan has been aiming for the whole time, to steal God's worship, to take what man was created for relationship with God, and, and, and Satan's trying to steal that relationship and to, and to steal God's glory, to steal God's worship. And so what does he do? He sends in this false prophet who has them build an image, apparently, in the very temple of God. Remember, in chapter 12, Satan was kicked out of heaven for the final time, so he does the next best thing. In order to blaspheme the name of God, and in order to set himself up as God, Satan apparently has uh, the, the false prophet in the very temple of God in Jerusalem, which will be built, to set up an image of the Antichrist. By the way, this, this image is spoken of um, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and then Jesus confirms it in Matthew 24. In Daniel chapter 9, it says this, says, the ruler will make a treaty with the people, 
we've covered all that weeks ago. The, the people, in this case, is the nation of Israel. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of sevens, or one week, your translation may say. But after this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He'll desecrate the temple by putting this image in there until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Notice how God never lets us get very far away from the, the idea that he is ultimately going to win this thing. I mean, I mean, beginning in chapter 13 and, and even today in chapter 13, it's like, man, Antichrist, that dude, he's taken over. And he is. And the, and the false prophet, he's got all this power and he's doing all these signs. And he is. But God never lets us get too far away from the idea that, he's a, that he is God, that he's on his throne. And don't forget how this thing's going to come out. We're going to see that next week in chapter 14. We're going we're gonna to turn it around and start he- heading uphill next week in chapter 14. Uh, that causes until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus, referring to this text, says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's what referred to a lot of times, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, referring to the end times and the nation persecution that comes on the nation of Israel, all those things that we have talked some about already. So the image is set up, the, the Antichrist is solidifying his power for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. He's been taking over countries and gaining support and, and building and signing this peace treaty with Israel, all these things. But in, right here in the middle of the tribulation period, in comes this, this religious leader, this false religious leader, this false prophet who convinces the people through all these signs and all these miracles that, hey, look to that guy. Look to, look to the, this guy. He's the one that's going to answer all your problems. He's the one that's going to have all the solutions for all this mess. You know, we've been going through a lot of stuff and all this stuff's been happening. Here's our answer right here. Here's our Savior. That's what he's wanted. That's what he's wanted the whole time. And then uh, in verse... 16 through the end of the chapter it's just this idea he causes all nobody gets out of this the small and the great the rich and the poor the free men and the slaves to be given and here it is one of the most widely known and widely discussed topics in all of the bible and yet still one of the most mysterious this mark of the beast to receive this mark on their right hand and on their forehead. What is the mark? Well, let me say this. There are some people that believe that the mark is not an actual mark. All right? I know that's disappointing to those of you who have read the Left Behind series. But there are those that believe that, the, that there's not actually a mark put on your forehead or a mark put on your hand. That what John is saying is that the Antichrist and the false prophet set it up so that, so that you must be convinced and believe in your mind and with your actions that he is God, that he is the one there to follow, and that it's, that it's symbolically speaking, that, that it's in here and it's in here that, that we're supposed to follow him. It's not an actual mark. Let me say this. There is some scriptural uh, strength to that idea, if you will. Remember I said a while ago, isn't it interesting how the false prophet mimics God's prophets with some of his miracles? Same with this forehead and right hand in, in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that's known as the Shema. 
That's what, what the Hebrews would know it as, the Shema. It's a very important passage of Scripture to them. It says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your foreheads. Isn't that interesting? Now listen, I'm convinced that it was never God's intention for the people, the nation of Israel, to actually start writing out tiny little copies of this and putting it in a little box known as a phylactery and tying it around their forehead or attaching it to their, to their forearm or their, or their right hand. I'm convinced that was never God's intention, even though that's what the Jewish people eventually began to do. They literally began to make tiny copies and put it in this little box and, and tie it. You still see it today in Orthodox Judaism. And tie this phylactery around their head or on their hand. God's intention, what God was saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is that, is that this, this law... This word that I'm giving you, it, it, it is your life. It becomes your life. It, it, it's, it's what's in your mind. It's what's in your actions. And it comes out of you. You bind it on your hands and, and it's, it's a frontal on your forehead that this becomes who you are. So I'm pretty sure that God in Deuteronomy 6 was referring symbolically to what they, they should do, even though, as I said, the Jewish people eventually began to do that. So, it could be argued from that that this isn't really a mark, that it's symbolically Satan's copying again, and he's symbolically saying, I am at the forefront of your thoughts, your actions, everything is based on me. Cut to the chase. I believe, however, it is actually still a mark of some type. Now, what that mark is, I don't know. For you know, people throughout history, as well as a brand, is a tattoo. Uh, today, you know, I get articles sent to me periodically about the microchip that's placed under, can be placed right under the skin and it can be scanned. And what, uh, we, we don't really know what the mark is. What we know is you don't want it. And you don't want anybody that would be alive during that time to have it. Because you can't buy food, you can't get gas, you can't find a place to stay, you can't do anything without this mark. I believe it's an actual mark because that's what verse 17 says, that people can't buy or sell without this mark. It seems to be something that they actually have on them. And you can't do anything, you are a fugitive from the Antichrist and from the false prophet if you refuse to take this mark. And then, real quickly, time is up. All right, we have Real quickly, um, verse 17, again, he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast, the number of his name. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Everybody and their brother, pretty much, has been offered up as a possibility for who the Antichrist is that has this mark on them. One of the things that you may not know and that may help you is to understand that in the Greek language that this book was written in originally, the book of Revelation, the the New Testament, in the Greek language in which it was originally written in, the Greek language did not have a separate numerical value system. You understand? We have letters to make words and we have numbers, right? The Greeks didn't have that. The Greeks had their letters. They had their alphabet which also represented their numeric system. For instance, alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, was one. 
beta, two, gamma, three, and so forth. And it, it went on and got complicated as how they added the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it's, I say complicated. It can be understood. It's, I don't mean that. So here's what that means. They didn't have separate numbers. So John's saying, now, now listen, here's wisdom. And John's trying to tell us something. Even, even though we may not be alive during this time, John seems to want everybody to know something about this. And I, and I, I declare to you it's a mystery, and we've been work, working on it for 2,000 years. But it appears that John is saying that whoever the Antichrist is, his name in Greek would have the numeric value of 666. I think that's what he's saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? Every Greek word, every Greek name would have a numeric value to it. Does that make sense? Since every letter has a numeric value to it, you add them all up, you would have a numeric value to it. As I said, everybody and their brother has been offered up as to who the Antichrist could be. We don't know for sure. However, just because I like to stir things up from time to time, I will give you something that I found interesting that I came across in my research uh, of this text. It's just food for thought, okay? But the the church leaders who existed, who who were living right after the time or after the time of the apostles. Remember the apostles, the the guys that hung out with Jesus? And when, when they passed from the scene, when they died and passed from the scene, the leaders of the church after that are known today as the church fathers. We look at them historically as the church fathers. That's what, what they're referred to as. One of the earliest of the church fathers was a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus apparently spent a good deal of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist was. Irenaeus discovered, and by the way, believed that, this is, that he was right, this is who the Antichrist was, Irenaeus believed, oh, listen, we're out of time. We better go. We'll close. <laughs> Irenaeus discovered that the word in Greek, Latinus, has a numeric value of 666. Now, this is the English translation. This is the Greek um, using capital letters, lambda, alpha, tau, epsilon, Iota Nu, Omicron Su, that those Greek letters, when added together, have a numeric value of 666, Latinus. Some people say it's mythology. Some people say it's built on truth. But Latinus is purported to be the founder of the people known as the Latins. The Latins were the predominant people group of the Roman, uh, or certainly of the city of Rome, The language of Latin became the official language of the Roman Empire. It also became the official language of the Roman Catholic Church. And so, in a sense, the word Latinus is synonymous with the word Rome. Basically came to be the Romans, if this Latinus existed. So it could be, mind you, I'm not saying this for sure, but it could be that the mark of the beast in some way, is connected to the name Rome or even Latinus. It, I, I don't know. It could say property of Rome, for all I know. I don't, I don't know. But it's interesting to think about. 
And the numeric value does add up to 666, but let me say that there are a lot of Greek words or even names that could add up to that. But Irenaeus was convinced of this. Now, here's why this matters. If you haven't been with us, you may not know this, but we, even last week we talked about that. What does the early part of chapter 13 tell us? That there will be a revival of the ancient Roman Empire, that Rome will come to power again, that Rome will rule, and that the Antichrist will basically function as a Caesar. So he will be the head of the, the Roman or the European Empire that's going to be revived, that seventh head that we looked at last week that, that was dead and came back to life. He will rule, be Caesar of the Roman Empire. So there may be a connection here between that. I don't know. Here's what I know. I say it again. You don't want it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've committed your life to him already, you won't have to worry about it. But somebody you know may very well have to worry about it. Somebody you work with, somebody you care about, may actually live through this time. I don't know. I can't tell you whether the Antichrist is even alive or not at this time or not. I know there's a lot of indications that this thing's drawn to an end. So, my BP squared for today, my big picture biblical principle for Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 18 is simply this. The false prophet will create a false religion focused on a false Christ. The false prophet will create a false religion built around a false Christ. You and I know that there's another Christ, a true Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a dreadful time the tribulation period will be. Chapter 13 sees the rise of two beasts, the Antichrist and his false prophet, both under the control of Satan and both used by him to bring the world to their knees to worship him. Fortunately for us, the story doesn't end with chapter 13. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, God is going to win out and establish His righteous kingdom. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. 
It's Q&A time at Cross Culture Church. Each week we take one question that someone has turned in. We have Q&A cards out there, by the way, if you have a question. Uh, Relate it to anything that, that the Bible might have to do. If the Bible deals with it, that's our promise. If the Bible deals with it, we will. Now, sometimes that leads us into some areas that make, may make people a little uncomfortable or the things like that. But if God's Word addresses the subject matter, then I think we should address uh, subject matter as well. So the Q&A for today is, I've gotten this one several times here lately, and uh, it was kind of, you know, I thought, yeah, I kind of understand why I would get that one. The question looks like this today. What does the Bible say about playing the stock market? Is it the same as gambling? Now, if you happen to invest in the stock market for the last couple of years, you might say, yeah, but it's, it's uh, pretty much a, a gamble and we're losing and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so uh, I kind of understood where this question would come from, and it's a good one and practical one, and so I wanted to deal with it this morning. A couple things to keep in mind when we're addressing this question. The uh, first one is simply this. Um, the stock market didn't exist during Bible times, okay? All right? They didn't. It just, the NASDAQ, Fortune 5, it just, none of that stuff was, was there. So you can't turn to a particular, you know, text and say, okay, thus saith the Lord about Wall Street. You know, you're not... You're not going to find that uh, per se. So, so keep that in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is this. The concept of retirement didn't exist either. And I bring that up because oftentimes if you happen to be invested in the stock market, it has to do because you're trying to build enough uh, net worth to retire someday. Retirement is a fairly new concept, uh, historically speaking, in our, in our culture. As a matter of fact, it's, it's pretty much an American thing, or certainly started as an American thing, uh, and only within about the last 100 years. Prior to that, you worked, and then you died. You know, I mean, that was, that was pretty much it. You worked in, until you died. So that, that concept, even the idea of retirement, uh, didn't really exist. Well, what do we know for sure is wrong? If you know, okay, is, is, is stock market wrong? Is gambling wrong? Is what... What do we know for sure is wrong? Here's what we know for sure is wrong. One thing, we know that the love of money is wrong. 1 Timothy 6.10 and Hebrews 13.5, uh, among several verses that might deal with that, teach us that, 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 that lust for money. Now, not that money in itself is wrong, but the love of money, where it controls me in a way, when it becomes the driving ambition and force of my life, that, the Bible says, is wrong. So the love of money is wrong. Second, we know this. That attempting to get rich quick, the book of Proverbs especially, but uh, the Bible in general warns against this desire to, to get rich quick. All right, now get that amount of money. If I could just, you know, then I'm going to be, the Bible says that's not where it is. And we know that our, our, our satisfaction, our contentment is not found in riches. It's not found in the, you know, in the square footage of our home or the, you know, the value of our car or that sort of thing. So the whole idea of getting rich quick, the scripture does warn against that. And then uh, the third thing it warns against is is not being a good steward. Scripture is very clear about, be careful, don't be a bad steward of the resources that God gives to you. Remember, when we talk about the resources God gives to us, you're not simply talking about money, although that's a part of it. He's talking about your talents, your gifts, your, your abilities, your physical strength, all those things. Um, and uh, numerous scriptures, Psalm 24, Psalm 50, 1 Timothy 6, uh, speak to the idea of make sure that you're, that you're a good steward of the resources that God gives to you. So that has to, to weigh into the equation as you're trying to, uh, uh, trying to decide this. Now, all that said, here's a, a good uh, statement to keep in mind when, when thinking about the stock market or something like that. Don't confuse risk with gambling. Okay, now that may sound the same, but it's not the same. God's not necessarily against risk, per se. As a matter of fact, you and I are called to risk it all for the cause of Christ. 
so gambling, or you could even say games of chance, are not, is not the same thing as risk. In some sense, playing the stock market is not really any different from a farmer who plants seed in the ground. Nobody would think of, a far, of being a farmer as, as gambling, and yet a farmer gambles that the seed that he purchases or invests in is good, that the soil that he planted in is good, that he'll receive enough water on his crops, that insects won't eat all of his crops, and that he, he will produce, that, that there will be a market for his produce when it comes up. The, all of that, in a sense, is a risk, but it's based on experience, it's based on knowledge that he has gained. So, bottom line, what is stock? Here's the best way to What is stock? Look at it, here's the definition. Uh, that I found. Stock is a means for people to become part owners of a company. Buying stock is no more inherently gambling than is ownership of any other business. If you think about it, the intent is to make a profit by producing something of benefit to customers. That's when you buy stock, you're buying it into a company. Investors receive their share of their profits in the form of dividends or increases in the value of the stock. So uh, playing the stock market, as my estimation of what Scripture says, the principle Scripture gives, is not the same as gambling. You, you should do it wisely. You should do it with research and in, investing time and energy into discovering those kind of things. But it's not the same as, uh, say, games of chance where you're putting money on the line, that sort of thing. That's Q&A for today.